Good morning, church. Like I said last week, our worship team is growing. It's getting harder to get the podium from there to over here. That's a good thing. Good job, Josh and our team leading us today. We're in the book of Daniel. We've been going through this book. We're in chapter 9 today. And we're going to take a break from looking at prophecies about the future to looking at the prayer life of Daniel and what we can learn from it. Now, I serve here in Guam, but my father, who is a pastor, pastors all the way across the ocean in Montana, in the States. But in all the 10 to 11 years I've been here, even when I was in L.A., I can pick up the phone and call my father for a variety of things. I call him sometimes and I say, hey, I need your wisdom on this. He's been a pastor much longer than I am. Even besides being a pastor, he just is a man of wisdom. And I can say to him, hey, I want to share this with you and tell me what you think. He can give me wisdom. Sometimes I call him and I say, I just need help with something. Can you, in a different kind of way. Sometimes I call him and I just lament about something that's going on. I just need you to hear my heart on this. Sometimes I call him just to enjoy talking to my dad because I enjoy him as my father. Now that idea, I kind of want to set it out there at the beginning because when we talk about prayer, I want you to think about that with your heavenly father. In the New Testament, there's an emphasis on as you become a Christian, you're put into the family of God. You're Uh, brothers and sisters, fellow Christians or brothers and sisters in the same family. He's a heavenly father. And we can go to him in prayer for the same kinds of things. I need wisdom. James says, any man lacks wisdom, ask and it will be given to you. You can ask for wisdom. You can ask for help in a variety of ways. I just need help with something. You can lament. You can call or call. I'm thinking of my, my own earthly father, but you can lift up in prayer lamentations that I I just want to share my heart how this is a struggle. And you can, in prayer, just enjoy the Father. There is a similarity there. And what we're going to do today is look at the prayer life of Daniel. And to me, that's an illustration for where I want to drive us at the end is what is your prayer life like? Now, if you haven't been with us, Daniel's kind of two parts. First half of the book gives the uh, timeline of Daniel taken out of his homeland in exile in Babylon, and he comes in as a teenager towards the end in chapter 6. He's in his 80s as he's, as he's thrown into the lion's den. He's an old man. And then the second half of the book are all flashbacks of him thinking back, and he's recording different visions and dreams that he had during the first half of the book. That's where we pick up today, and I titled this uh, um, prayer, warfare, uh, prayer Warfare Part 1, because we're going to get two messages on this. And the verse I pulled out there was, Then I turned my face to the Lord God and seeking Him by prayer. Let me pick up. There's a lot of text today, and we're going to break it into sections. And here's the first, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel writes this. In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer. Now, 
The first point that I want to make about this is that the Word of God moves us to prayer. Because this is what happens to Daniel. It says he perceived something by the prophet Jeremiah. Now, as the Israelites were, were brought out of their homeland into Babylon, not every one of them had a Bible like us today. We carry God's word with us. Not all of them had that. And some of those that had it mainly only had portions. Maybe some had the first five books. But, but we see here that Daniel had a portion of Jeremiah. Maybe he had all of Jeremiah. But Jeremiah lived prior to the, the life uh, of Daniel in the exile, all that we've read about, but he wrote exactly what would happen. Now, in Daniel, we've been looking at all these, these visions about the future, but before Daniel, there was Jeremiah, and he wrote about what would happen to Daniel. And I want to read to you that, because my point is this. He's reading God's Word, and something jumped out of God's Word, the pages, into his heart, into his mind, and it moved him to prayer. I want to show you what it was. I'm going to flip back to Jeremiah chapter 25. There's a whole section you could read in there. I'm just going to pick out a couple, couple uh, verses. In verse 9 it says that uh, the Lord, uh, for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. He predicted, Jeremiah, through God, that God was going to raise up Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and that they were going to conquer. They would be conquerors. He said that to them, but he goes on to say this in verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So just to track with me here, Jeremiah the prophet predicts, and he writes it down, and it becomes scripture, and he writes down that God is going to raise up a servant, and he names a servant, and it's the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to come lay waste to your land, but then he says it's only going to last 70 years. Now Daniel's he's reading Jeremiah devotions, and he reads this section, and he picks up on 70 years. And that's what it says in Daniel that I read. Daniel perceived in the books the number of years according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. Now, 70 years, first of all, when exactly did it begin? I don't think Daniel may have known exactly that moment because there were a number of deportations. They were conquered. They came in. They took a lot of the Israelites. They brought them. Then they came. The second deportation of people, three deportations. When exactly does the timeline start? But Daniel knows this. He can do the math and he knows it's getting close. So his heart is heavy for his people, a conquered people. But he sees something in scripture that says it's not going to last forever it's 70 years. And suddenly he's moved and motivated by that. There's an end to this. And he goes to the Lord in prayer. Because his next thing he says is, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer. Now, there's something else that accompanies his prayer. I'm going to pick up right there and read a couple more verses and listen to this. He says, Seeking him by prayer and Please for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. 
Now, there's a bunch of things I just said there. I, I listed them. I want you to see these things go along with prayer. And I, I'm pretty sure that when a lot of you, if you spend time in prayer, it's not always accompanied by these things. Pleas of mercy. Daniel's going to appeal to the attribute of mercy to, the, to God. You're a merciful God. He's going to appeal to that. And remember, my goal is to show you this is what Daniel did. And by the way, these are things we can do in our prayer life. Fasting. Maybe you have never fasted. If you're not aware what fasting is, fasting is when you, you set aside a time period where you're not going to eat food or, or drink. There's different kinds of fasts. Some of them is no food, but I'll drink. Some of them, they pick out particular things. We saw Christ went into the desert and he fasted when he was in the desert. Fasting is withholding food or drink from yourself and dedicating to God a time period where you're going to focus on him in your prayer. So lunchtime comes around. I'm hungry. I'm fasting. Instead of sitting down and feeding myself, I'm going to sequester myself somewhere and spend time in prayer with the Lord. And one of the things that this does, if you've ever fasted, then you know this, because you know, in the Western society, we eat pretty well. We eat pretty often. And if you skip a meal, your body lets you know it. It starts going, hey, come on, it's time to eat. I'm hungry. And you give in to yourself. You give in to yourself. Oh, man, I got to give myself some food. And there's a way in which denying ourselves is a way to connect us to God. Because growing in our faith means you're going to have to deny yourself something. You have to deny yourself um, a desire that's sinful. I got to learn that that's wrong. I'm going to de deny myself. But it's also a constant reminder. When I have fasted, I, the whole day, the hunger pains, sometimes it's like, the, obviously the longer you go, they, they hit you harder and quicker and with frequency. And every time you feel the hunger, it's supposed to draw you back to this is a time of dedication for the Lord. It's reminding you, a physical reminder of giving yourself to the Lord in prayer. You're dedicating yourself about praying over a particular thing. That's fasting. The next one is sackcloth and ashes. I have to confess, I've never done this one. You know, and it, you do see it in scripture. Sackcloth is, is low clothing and ashes, you're throwing ash on yourself. And it's a way, like when you would go before a king, a high and mighty king, you would make yourself low as a way of respect. And this is a way of coming before the Lord. The low, is, I'm going to make myself low. I want you to see my respect for you and that I want you to hear my prayers and my pleas. Daniel does this. And then it says confession. And I'm going to talk more about confession. This confession is of a particular nature because it says uh, my God, and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That's not a confession of sin. That is a confession, an, a, a, an attestment to who he is. God, you're awesome. God, you're great. God, you are a merciful God, and you, he's watching the, those who follow him, if they keep his commandments. And he's, he's, he's connecting to something here. Because the nation of Israel did not do that. And there's a way in which he's going to say, you're a merciful God, 
and he's picking up on something about the will of God. You know what the will of God was? The will of God was this. I just read about it in Jeremiah. It's only 70 years. I know we're getting close. And so because that's your will, I'm going to jump into that will and I'm going to say, God, live up to your will. You're a man of your word. You're an awesome God. If you said 70 years, keep it 70 years. Let's end this thing. He's getting on board with God's will. And that's something to take away. Because in today's culture, we often fight the will of God. We often, we're over here, and, and just, just like Daniel, see that top part, the process of prayer? He perceived something. After he perceived, he says it's going to apply to him. How does it apply to him? I'm in exile. It's only 70 years. It's got to come to pass. If it's the will of God, it's got to come to pass. When you read God's word, suddenly you discern something about yourself that's, that's, that perhaps it applies to you and it has to come to pass. And then you've got to get into that will of God. See, fighting the will of God is common. I heard a great story from a pastor who said this couple came to him and they wanted to get married. <clears throat> and the, the young lady was a Christian, a follower of Christ, grew up in the church. The young man was not. And so she came and said, we want to get married. Can you do the counseling? Can we get married? Can you do the ceremony? And as he sat down with them and talked with them, he realized she's a Christian. He's not. And he had to say to her, <clears throat> you know what? what God's word says. It says that a, a person who is a believer should not marry someone who's not a believer. The Bible calls that an unequaled yoking or connecting or covenanting. Don't do it. Because <clears throat> like two oxen who go under a yoke and they pull a cart, if one is stronger than the other, it's going to slightly move it this way. And it won't go in the straight line. You need to be yoked with someone who's equally strong in the Lord so that you can keep in line with God and, and not get pulled off the path of God. You must see it. You see it in God's Word. Just like Daniel. I saw it in God's Word. It applies. I'm going to get into the will of God. And so if it says I can't marry that person, but they say, but pastor, I really love them and God's giving me these feelings. And you know what? I prayed about it and I have a peace about it. And the pastor says, well, whatever peace you have, it doesn't come from the Lord because his word is true and it, it's giving you his will for your life. You can't come over here and be in his will then. You're doing something else. You're going, this is my will. I'm over here in my will. And Daniel, see, he saw it. He perceived it. This is the will of God. He steps into it. So when you pray, you need to pray in a way that aligns with God's will that connects to his word. What does his word say? God's word, <clears throat> sometimes it's going to jump out of us like it did with Daniel. It's going to drive us to prayer. And when we pray, we need to line up with his word. That's the first point, really, is that God's word moves us. Secondly, God's word, we see it magnifies God. Now, I took this point from uh, another writer I was reading, I, I, I loved it so much, and then I was applying it to my own life. Because in this passage, he says, O Lord, the great and awesome God, the keeper of covenants, he's describing 
the character and the attributes of God. Now a magnifying glass, you take it and whatever's underneath the magnifying glass is enlarged and you can see it better. And so God's word will do that to you. If you're in God's word, it's going to magnify God. It's going to take one of his, of his attributes and it's going to blow it up and you're going to see it better and you're going to grow in God that way. And I've tried to apply this to my prayer life. I'm praying and there's a particular thing going on and I say, I need to magnify this attribute of God right now in application to this. And I, I blow it up. I magnify it. I focus on that and apply it to my prayer life. Daniel did that. Daniel, you're a keeper of covenants. Let's magnify that. It has a lot of application right now. And when you pray, that's how you pray. God's word informs us. It teaches us. And we take it and we magnify it in our prayer life. And you know what? If you, if you don't know the will of God or you're fighting against the will of God, because there's sin in your life, then it affects your, it affects your ability to pray right. Because if you're praying for the opposite of his will, it's not going to work. It's affecting your prayer life. So we need to know God's will. In fact, in the New Testament, it talks about, it uses this word, Paul uses this word called a callous. If you continue to allow sin in your life, you can become calloused, like on the bottom of your foot where you have no feeling. No feeling to God's word speaking to you. No feeling to the Holy Spirit trying to illuminate God's word to you. And so when you're reading it and it's jumping out at you, whatever the will is, get into it. And get it into your prayer life. But this is what Daniel does. The word of God moves you to recognize that sin then. You need to recognize the sin because it can callous you. Recognize the sin. And look what he reads. In these next verses, he's going to use four different Hebrew words to describe this. Verse 5 says, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Now these four different Hebrew words for sin. The first one he says, it's translated, we have sinned. It means missing the mark. It's like if you have a target and you're trying to hit that target and you shoot at it, you totally miss it. That's what he's saying. God has a target. He has a standard. He gives us his standard in his word. You could go all the way back to the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments are a standard, a standard to live by. Love the Lord your God. No other gods before you. Don't murder. Don't covet. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't steal. Like this is a standard to live by. And sin is missing that mark. Now I remember growing up, my three older sons, Josiah, Ethan, and Caleb, as we were teaching them about standards and rights and wrongs, and we had this thing that we put on our refrigerator called the if-then chart. And it worked like this. If you do this, which is basically breaking a standard, then the consequence is this. And so we kind of put it all out there so they knew. So there was no ambiguity. If you do this, the consequence will be that. And there were degrees of consequences. You know, one of the worst consequences is for one of the worst things they could do. If you take your fist and you physically hit your brother, that's one of the worst things. It's a stronger consequence. Sometimes something would happen 
And we would bring them in to the refrigerator and we would say, let's, let's read our if-then chart. What did you do? And he would find it on there. What's the consequence? And it was like, can't be an argument. It's right there. But we're teaching them about the standard, about the standard you need to hit and not miss. And he goes on to say, uh, done wrong. Some translations might say committed iniquity. This means to distort or act perversely. It's a way of saying you take one of the standards of God and you've perverted it. You have said, you've sinned in a way that says this is okay, but it's not okay. It's a perversion of what's right. Then he goes on, the next one, acted wickedly. And this Hebrew word has a connotation of premeditation, meaning you know it's wrong, but you think through it and you do it anyways. You're, you, you know it's wrong. And I think all of us at some level in our life, we've done this. We know this is wrong, but we follow through with it anyways. That you thought it wasn't just done out of like emotion where we reacted. No, 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 no. You were thinking through it and you know about the consequences. You're dragged away into that a premeditation. And the last one he, he, he says is rebelled, which simply means to defy authority. Now, if the standard comes from God and you go against the standard, you're defying him. You are, you are saying, God, I am not going to listen to you. I'm going to do it my way. Your will, I see it, but I'm going to do my own will. And so you're rebelling. Now, what were the sins of Israel? How did they miss the mark? Well, you can do a study of that. I mean, there was a breaking of all the Ten Commandments at some point nationally, but idolatry was the main one. The kings throughout their history allowed other gods to come in and be present. They set up shrines. They set up idols. They set up things that would, would honor and worship false gods, which is the, the first one, have no other gods. But the primary one that connects to the 70 years has to do with the Sabbath. And then you can read about this in um, Leviticus 25, and you can relate to this because we live in a week that has seven days, which comes right out of Genesis in the creation order. There's six days, and the seventh day is the Sabbath, which means you rest. Don't work on the Sabbath. Now, you have a Sabbath day, but in the nation of Israel, they had a Sabbath year. In the same way that there's six days and you rest on day seven, you work six years, and then on the seventh year, you rest. You let specifically the land. You let the land rest. So we're going to go and we're going to farm and we're going to try to produce a harvest every year, every year for six years. And then the seventh year, we don't farm. And what God did was he would come and say, in year six, I'm going to double your harvest. If normally you get this in year six, I'm going to give you this. And you take that extra and you save it and you use it in the Sabbath year so you don't have to farm that year. He wanted the land to rest. He wanted them to rest in that seventh year. And here's what Israel did. They took the double portion and it was like I got twice my money for the price of one and now in the seventh year I'm going to plant anyways even though I've got extra and they were, they were greedy and they, they tried to, to have more. Instead of letting it rest they used it for greed and over a long period of time, God saw them doing it over and over and over again. And here's what he did. For every year, they took away from God the land 
to rest. He put them in a year of captivity. Seventy years they broke the Sabbath year. Seventy years you're in captivity. God said to them, I'm going to get my Sabbath rest out of that land despite what you're doing. And actually in Leviticus it says that. It says that the land will rest while you're in captivity. They should have just obeyed him in the first place, in the standard. But see, Daniel's perceiving all this. He's reading Jeremiah, and it's, it's, he's perceiving it, and it's moving him to prayer. And we and, and got to recognize the sin. What was it they did, that they did that was wrong? And I just kind of explained that in relation to the 70 years. So I go to the next one. We have the Word of God moved him to pray. It magnifies God. It moves you to recognize sin, and the Word of God moves you toward confession. Now, this is the different confession. This is not the same as the first one where he says, the Lord is great and awesome God. This is a confession that says, I admit I was wrong, which can be really hard to do. Sometimes when people fight, you don't want to be the one that says, I'm wrong. And yet that's exactly what the confession is, that they need to admit. I see some of you married people are poking each other right now. <clears throat> but in this section, I want you to listen to how many times I, I read the words to you, okay? Because he's going to contrast God and the people who are wrong, okay? So let me read through this. Verse 7 says, To you, Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near, those who are far away, in all the lands to which you've driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. He's already contrasting. To you, blessing. To us, shame. By the way, not just us in Babylon, us everywhere. To those who are far in every land, we committed sin against God. Then he goes on to say, To us, Lord, belongs shame. To our kings, our princes, to our fathers, because we sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and not obeyed the, verse of, the voice of our Lord God by walking in his laws. Now, sometimes when you're having a disagreement, you're trying to sort out who is right and who is wrong. That's the whole purpose of going to court sometimes is there's the judge and it's going to judge in the case right, wrong. And that's part of what's happening right here. In the confession, they're saying, wrong. Lord, you are right. Us, wrong. And the thing that I take from this, that I give to you, is in your prayer life, there has to be confession. You have to examine your life, and you have to, to fix your relationship in the New Testament era of grace in the church. You have to recognize the ways in which we need to fix our relationship with God. First John says if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. But confession is admitting I'm wrong. And the other night, I, I was sitting on my couch. I'm going to share a personal story. You're going to see how I'm not a perfect pastor. I, I, I can't use anybody else because it'll look bad. It's like I'm throwing you under the bus. I'm going to throw myself under the bus, okay? I'm sitting on the couch, tired. It's getting late. My wife is sitting next to me. My daughter's right here. And the, the little cat jumps into my lap. Now, this little cat is active, always wanting to play. 
And I pick up this little, it's like this flexible stick that wiggles. It has a feathery thing. And, it, you know, you do this and it makes it do this, you know. And as I'm doing it, he reaches out and, yeah, gets my finger. And I can feel the claws getting, digging in. Now my reaction is to try to get away. And every time I try to get away, I could feel the claws going deeper into my fingers to the point where I had to yank it out. And I just, in the frustration with the cat, I took the little thing like this and went whack, 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 three times on its head. Boo, 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 cat. Like, you know, I'm like, you know, the alpha dog. Line, don't cross that line, right? And of course, in that moment, how do you think the ladies next to me responded? My, my daughter who loves animals, dad, how can you hit the cat? And then my wife who loves my daughter, how can you do that to your daughter? You know, and I'm, I'm reading it this way. You're siding with the cat? And I get up in frustration, fine, side with the cat. And I'm walking out of the living room, I grab a pillow and I frisbee it at my wife. It's like, <laughs> right? And then I get back to my room and this thought came to my mind. Man, you're wrong. I got to go tell her. I don't want to tell her. I'm still upset. I don't want to admit I'm wrong. And that's the whole thing about confession. And by the way, if you don't admit you're wrong, the relationship doesn't go well. You know, it's like you walk up and you're like, hey, everything's okay. What? Are you kidding? You just frisbeed my head with a pillow, right? To admit, to fix it, you have to admit. And by the way, to admit means it's wrong. I shouldn't do it again. It's not, confession in the Bible isn't, I admit I'm wrong, but I'll do it again. That does not work. That's not how the, that, that's not the pattern. The pattern is confession is to lead you towards not doing it anymore. I mean, what kind of relationship would I, would I have with, oh, it's wrong. Every time I'm upset, I'm frisbeeing again, frisbeeing again. You know, my wife's walking around all the time like this. That doesn't work. She's going to start to, you know, you know. All the married people are like, gotcha. Right? So you don't repeat. Now, I didn't give this to the first service because we always have a little short time. I'm going to jump into the New Testament. There's two kinds of confessions I want to share with you. There's a confession that's vertical and there's a confession that's horizontal. So when I, vertical's this way, the horizon, horizontal's this way. Vertical is me going to God. Ultimately, every sin is towards him. It's rebellion towards him. And you have to always go to him and make that right. But you also have to horizontally, like I had to go to my wife and fix it there. And confession with your wife, it's not only am I fixing that, but in the New Testament, this horizontal confession, Paul says we confess sins one to another. It's not just every time I, I maybe sin against her, but I bring her into my life. She's very close to where she knows my weaknesses. And if I, if I fail, I come to her and I say, I confess to her. Because you know what happens? We want to confess only this way. And no one knows about it. And you continue to repeat your sins. Because no one else is, is keeping you accountable. But the reason he gives you this one, the horizontal, so you got help. So someone can come alongside you and say, hey, I'm here to help shoulder that. You must have vertical and horizontal confession. Now, Daniel here, what's interesting is he's giving us, right, confession to you. You're right, right? To us, shame. But there's this little thing that happens in verse 11 where he says this. 
In verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we've sinned. And I was reading that, the curse. Like, what does that mean? If you don't know what that means, you've got to look it up. What does he mean, the curse and the oath? That goes back to Leviticus. When they came into the land, the promised land, I'm giving you the land. But by the way, here's my standard, Ten Commandments. This is how you live. If you follow my commandments, I'm going to bless you. And he actually says it this way. If you follow my commandments, rain's going to come. Your crops are going to grow. If you don't follow my commandments, I'm going to use things to draw you back to me. That's the whole cycle of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is them falling away from God, allowing something to happen where they go, this is so bad, they come back to God. That's the only way he gets them to come back. Because without that, they would fall away and probably fall away forever and completely. The discipline is used to keep them in relationship with him. And he says, if you don't keep my commandments, then the rain's not going to come. And the sword might come, meaning invaders. And actually one part it says, wild animals might get some of your people. That's the kind of stuff that he uses. And that's what he's talking about there. He's confessing and then he's saying, again, it's like you're a man of your word because you made a, a promise to us and you're keeping it. Now that's important because he's going to bring up another aspect of this promise. And that takes me to the next point, which is that the word of God gives you confidence to ask because i'm going to summarize this next section which is basically him saying that that the lord kept ready the calamity in other words he utilized things to 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 to, to discipline but then he says in the middle of that he says as it is written in the law of moses all this calamity has come upon us yet we have not entreated the favor of the lord our god turning from our sins gaining insight from your truth in other words he said he says this in the middle of it all okay the promise was we keep your commandments you're going to bless the land we don't keep your commandments discipline but somewhere in the middle in that oath god said this to them if you find yourself in discipline because of your sin repent bring yourself back to me and we'll make the relationship right. And here Daniel is drawing back on that oath, and he's saying, we haven't done that. We are in exile in Babylon, and we haven't even entreated him or gone to him in prayer. And, the, and there's a, the thing I want to take from this to give to you is one of the things that God's Word does for you in your prayer life is it gives you confidence to go to him in prayer because it tells you to do it. Do it. Go to him in prayer. If you find yourself in trouble or you're caught in sin, confess sin. Make things right with him. He will restore you. In fact, in Leviticus 26, it says, if Israel would confess her sin, he would bring the blessing again. Now, in the New Testament, how does this work? Because we're not Israel. But Paul gives us a lot of the same. 1 John 1, 8, I already mentioned. In 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 again, he's able to make all things work together for your good. 1 Corinthians 10, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Over and over again. See, 
like Daniel, who found Jeremiah, it jumped out and it drove him to prayer. You need to find these things in Scripture and hold on to them and be led into prayer. Now, I think about Jesus who talked about this and said, first he compared earthly fathers to the heavenly father. He said, you know, earthly fathers, if their child comes, their son comes and says, Dad, can I have bread? He's not going to give them a stone. And if they come and say, Dad, can I have a fish? He's not going to give them a snake. And he says, and those earthly fathers are evil. That's what he says, meaning like they are not perfect. They, they are sinful, and yet they got that down. How much more will your perfect, righteous, just, heavenly Father give you what you ask if you come before him in prayer? See Mona sitting right here? She prayed and prayed for safe haven to have a new building. And God brought a new building to them. And she got there, and it was in really bad shape. And she said, I should have prayed for a building that, had, that was in good shape. <laughs> right? I wasn't specific enough. And that's true. Sometimes we don't pray specific enough. But what we see here with Daniel is that God's word gives us the confidence to ask. Lastly, is my last point is that prayer is about God's glory. I'm going to read the last section to you, and I want you to try to, to as I read it, if you're following me, who is the point of emphasis here, right? Oh Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become by word among all who are around us. Now, therefore, our, oh our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake. This is a good one. For your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, if you didn't catch it, in those verses, he's casting everything back to the name of God. The word Christian means follower of Christ. If you're a Christian, you go out in the world and you act unbecoming of Christ, that's not good. You know, I, I use this example, I coach a team, and you wear the, the name of the team on your jersey. You go out there and, you, and you're dropping F-bombs and kicking guys, playing dirty. The name of the team goes outward. Do you know how that team plays? The team's name. And that's what Daniel's doing. Daniel's saying, we wear your name. It's your city. It's your people because of your name and your mercy. Not because of us and we're able to be righteous, but because of you. And what you see is he's putting front and center God and God's glory in it all. In fact, he specifically prays for three things. The sanctuary, that's God's house on earth. The city, that's the dwelling place of his people and his people, all of which reflect his name. So we see he's focused on God's reputation and he's focused on God's people. Now, I'm just going to say this. That is the antithesis 
of most of our prayers today. Because most of our prayers are very self-centered. Lord, I'm here in prayer because I need this. Can you help me with that? This situation in my life is going on. Over and over again, we're praying about us. And there's a place for that, yes. But Daniel's prayer, because you know what, Daniel? And this, when he's right, this, right now, he could retire. Rich. He's like the second highest guy in the kingdom right now. He got a penthouse, overlooks the, the, the gardens. And yet, you find him in prayer, right? All through Daniel, that's what you see. He is a man of prayer. And I think about the verse that says, the fervent prayers of a righteous man prevail much. Perhaps God's not powerful in your life or your prayers aren't being answered because number one, you're not fervent. You don't pray very much. Number two, you're not righteous. You're not trying to live by God's standard. You must try to live by God's standard then come before him and lift up in prayers. And Jesus says, if you ask, he will hear and he will give. And we take this away from Daniel. We get lessons for today. And I think maybe the main lesson is just that when you read God's word, it's going to tell you the will of God. Find out God's will and get into his will and walk in that and lift it up in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the life of Daniel, for what he brings, the lesson that we get. It's so applicable to us in our prayer lives. May we be a people who are a people of prayer like Daniel. Not thinking about our own lives, but also praying for your church. Praying for your church here in Guam. Praying for your home church. That we're able to continue to bring people in and connect them and give life to them. And, and plug them in in ways where they can use gifts. And then that our church can go outward and build relationships in the island of Guam with people who don't know you. So that we can bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. And then Lord, that we might go beyond Guam and reach the next islands. As Paul said, the gospel grows Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. It has a rippling outward motion that we would be a church that does that and it begins with our prayer because we're, we're a people who will pray not just for ourselves but for your work and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll close out singing together.